With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Happy holidays, everybody. It's the darker side of the after show. I still struggle saying that sometimes. Maybe one day I won't. And I'm here with my very good friend, Sean. We've got a new episode, but get this. We only have a couple more episodes, two, I believe. So this is, I feel like it's like the sad ending to a season where it's like a good book. But Sean, let people know what we're going to learn about today. Well, today's episode, episode number nine, we're covering the lifetimes and the, the killing of Stanley Ketchell, a middleweight legend in many boxing historians' eyes. And I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this one, Luke, because, you know, this was a story where I learned a lot about Stanley Ketchell from what I already knew. And, and this is the beauty of doing these stories that we've covered is I tend to, we tend to try and pick ones where we don't know the ins and outs of them already you know it's, it's all well and good doing a Muhammad Ali because there's so much literature out there on Ali whereas someone like Stanley you know there's not a lot out there there's a there's a couple of books there's a few articles that have been written but the reality is there's there's not a lot of information out there on Stanley because he lived in a time over a hundred years ago so we're talking about events that occurred so so long ago that only history will tell us what we what we know about him uh, and what's been put out there about him but i hope that everybody that's listened has enjoyed it you know and they've actually enjoyed an education on on stanley catchell and his life and his untimely demise of course and i'm sure we'll we'll get into the the nitty-gritty of that but um just to burst lukey's bubble luke we've only got one episode left my friend one episode that's it we're done then I know it's bittersweet because like I've really enjoyed these week-long therapy sessions I mean podcasts with you it's been very good 
I know, it's been great. I'm, I'm excited to do the finale. Uh, the finale is going to be a great one. We'll talk about that, of course, at the end and give a, give the, the viewers and the listeners a bit of an inclination of what's coming for the season finale. But Stanley Ketchell then, a long episode, Luke, just over two hours. Uh, we genuinely didn't think it'd go that long when recording it because... You know, we, we once we get into the, the flow of the story, we didn't realise how long this would be. But actually, you know, there's some great tales in there. Uh, and I suppose, like I always ask you about these individuals, I always say to you, like, what was your perception of them going into the story? And what did you learn from it? What did you take away from learning about Stanley Ketchell's life and demise? John Wayne was a terrible influence on the early part of the 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 like i see even though this is prior to john wayne i feel like the john wayne feeling of america was there and i was sitting and thinking like i watched frosty the snowman it was being sung on uh, radio and the guy was kind of singing it like an old school italian mobster and i was thinking about how like what we deem cool is kind of criminal at times and how it's shifted from being like a mob guy to like a black version of a gangster rapper in American culture. And I feel like Ketchel was a lovable, troubled, I'll use this word again, schizotypal personality type where he's very superstitious, would probably be labeled in the modern society as someone that might have a learning disability or extra needs. And he's just kind of this guy that existed that was that was like my entry point is he has all these facets of that early rebel 1900s part of america that i think built up the john wayne story yeah well like i said at the top of the show it's like red dead redemption it's the only modern day comparison i could make to it is like every most people have played that game and and to be honest you know, going off the subject a little bit, I wasn't really sure whether I'd be keen on a game like that, you know, the old Wild West and the, the tales of it. But I suppose once you get into a game like that, you really get engrossed in the culture of it and you, you start to learn a little bit more about it yourself because you are intrigued. And this is what I felt like the catch-all story was like. You know, we were talking about a guy who seemed to consider himself part of the, the old Wild West, although that, that was the back end of the old Wild West, I think there was still a few sort of settlements that did remain uh, at the time Ketchell was around, but the, for the for the most part, that had all ended. That that culture, that society, that, that way of living had practically ended, but there were elements of that still around, and that's that, that's what Ketchell seemed to sort of latch onto and considered himself to, to, to be a cowboy. That's, that's the kind of perception I took away, was Stanley Ketchell was not only a fantastic boxer, but... In his own mind, he was a cowboy. He was a gunslinger. He carried around a revolver all the time. Like he couldn't go anywhere without this revolver. And take away from that what you will. Was he was he schizotypal? Was he just generally paranoid? You know, he carried a gun around on him all the time. Or was it just part of his persona? And I suppose that's where the audience get to make their own mind up as to who he really was. And was he was he a combination of all three? What did you think? Well, I think that what's so dangerous about life, and this is something I've been thinking about before I go to bed a lot, which tells you a lot about how my life is, is what your interests are kind of define what you think is cool. And I think that like idolizing the James gang, being a child train rider. And that took me back to like when I was a teenager, I was a skateboarder. And there's this kid that came from Oklahoma and he rode the trains 
And I remember skateboarders were almost like a gang. We'd unconditionally support fellow skateboarders because they did an activity like us. And I remember the guy once beat me up. Like he almost was about to beat me up. And I remember thinking like skateboarders don't do this. And I've forgotten that like it was like a human being like that you had to do that. And I say all that to say, I think Ketchel is one of these guys that idolized people that maybe weren't the people to idolize and add into the fact, like you had said, maybe he had some form of an already disposition to struggle in life. Now your baseline of what's socially acceptable is things that society says is not acceptable you're going down a path where things are going to just be awkward. Yeah, I think I think you're right in, in, in what you're saying when it comes down to that. I also think, like with Ketchel as well, he, was, he, he just, he seemed to, wherever he seemed to go on these travels that he went on riding the rails, he, he seemed to take away something from everywhere he went. It was like he would, you know, like you said, really, like he'd latch on to maybe the wrong people that were around the areas that he was traveling around in and it's like you'd see maybe certain characters and i can only imagine this was this was the case it might not be but i can imagine you know when when you go out traveling yourself even in this day and age you kind of come across certain characters in life that you know they some of them do leave a lasting impression on you and some of them do leave a little bit of a, a mark and an influence on you and i feel like he as a child riding the rails going through all these different towns going to all these different events it's like he, he met people along the way that he took influences from uh, and I think it was quite evident in in the way as he starts to grow older in his teens he starts to sort of show more traits of that uh, and he's getting involved in, in in the fighting in the boxing booths and being involved in all these backroom backroom style brawls uh, it's like he he had this thirst for it you know he, he met the characters that were involved or were around and they weren't the right characters they were shady characters and he took a slice of each one of them and he kind of like he molded his own personality out of them all but it was it was a crazy sort of childhood for him you know it was a crazy like this kid you know imagine now like I've got I've got two daughters. One of my daughters is like nearly seven, and like I, I can't imagine my daughter going getting a bus or a train or a tram or something like that to go to travel somewhere. This is what Stanley Ketchell was doing, you know. I mean, yeah, the days were different. Not as many people around. Not as much transport technology, etc. But really, going around, you know, as he was, he was just doing what he wanted to do, and he seemed to enjoy it. I suppose my question to you would be like, having heard that early part of his life and having heard what he went through and, and, and the sort of journeys he went on. Do you think like he did pick up a lot of the bad traits of people and the personalities of certain people and it, he molded them together to create his own version? Well, I think that like I have here, like in my notes, it's like his college started at like seven or eight and it was just being out in the world. Like that was his education was just like, I'm going to roam. And I think that, seeing and experiencing life is one of the most uh the biggest teaching moments right you can learn more in life than you can from college but you want to go to college because then there's more structure and it can show you patterns i think college is great for teaching patterns and setting you up for a financial future i think one of the most dangerous things about life is especially at a young age you're very receptive to whatever people tell you and that's where these bad habits sneak in because at seven years old I don't really remember what I was doing but I'm sure I was greatly like formed with who I am at this point 
based on the environments I was around. I think I was like a lot of times in isolation at home, a lot of times like doing activities by myself. What am I doing? I'm podcasting with someone across the world right now by myself. It's kind of eerie how there's a correlation to even at seven to being a grown up. There are similar habits. So basically to answer your question, I think it did him no services, basically roaming like a Billy the Kid, you know, which he was compared to. He's roaming like a young outlaw, and he's probably looked at as a young criminal by people that are like, what's this kid doing? Like the perception probably molds into thinking, hey, maybe I'm not on the up and up. Maybe I am a criminal, and that probably doesn't help with his thought process or what he does. The one thing I took away from his early beginnings and his, his his teens was that he seemed to, even at that age, he just didn't seem to have any fear at all. Like there was no fear in him. Like when you you hear the story of when he literally takes <laughs> he takes the job of a doorman or a bouncer, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Uh, he takes that job because that bouncer wasn't a very nice man. He ends up flooring this bouncer who's. Whew, good for you know three three or four five six maybe it's even seven inches taller than him i can't remember accurately what the um what the size of this bouncer was from the story but the fact that he just didn't care and he didn't care who was in front of him and, and he stood his ground and that occasion said to me that he had no fear but it also said to me that he was he was definitely destined to um to be a fighter you know he was definitely destined to be uh, within within a prize fighting ring at that that early age, there's a lot of telltale signs that, that that's where his his journey was going to go, and it's like he found this knack for for fighting. It was like this is something I'm good at, and when you know you're good at something, you usually pursue that avenue no matter what, and no matter what the costs are. You not, you normally look to pursue it because you you tend to go down that route. You whatever else you was doing at the time seems to take a bit of a, a back seat and then you just focus solely on this one in, in individual act or this in this instance this sport you know fighting getting involved in fighting was something that he seems to have a natural talent for at an early age and and that was that was quite i think it was quite empowering to know that you know this this kid remember he was a kid at this point and we talk about him as if he lived a long life and he didn't because you know he dies at 24 years of age at the age of what 13 14 he's knocking out grown men and taking the job of a doorman uh, and 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 you know not taking any crap from anybody and just standing his ground even at that young age so it was like he was he was forced in a way to grow up very very quickly and become an adult very very quickly way before his time of becoming an adult and that mentality seemed to come out in him when he was spoken to in in in, in journalistic interviews and in whatever it was that he was involved in, there seemed to be always this sort of witty response from him, these one-liners, and you know he just killed the conversation dead, and you just didn't, you couldn't, I couldn't imagine trying to interview this guy, you know, like this, at this at this point in time, like he, he was just a guy full of one-liners, a character, a, a person that I think probably would have done well in the social media age, but I I, I enjoyed learning that about him but throwing it back to you now and, and getting your take on it which is important is like when you when you hear that and you hear this this kid is going through these motions and you can kind of see which path he's going down already what what do you make of like where the end goal is going to be and how it's going to turn out i think i use this reference a lot in life and i've probably used this on the show 
some of my favorite movies and books are about kind of men driving cars across country or men in boats. It's typically men. Sometimes there's women, but it's typically I'm a man. I'm getting in a car. I don't have a destination, but I know that the journey will help guide my life to what the destination is. Kind of like the same with um, Contiki, one of my favorite books, right? They build a boat. They want to see if it's possible. But is there really a rhyme or reason beyond like, let's build this raft. Let's do this thing. It's like the journey is the thing. And I think that like the talking heads once said, there's no direction. There was no direction. The direction was I'm going to go forward because I just don't know any other way. And wherever forward takes me, that will be it. And I think that that is the likable nature of Stanley Ketchell was since there was like no clear direction. And even if he failed, it felt a tad bit innocent because you didn't feel anything was premeditated in a negative response. It was very like matter of fact and intuitive. And he was viscerally experiencing the moment in the moment. Yeah. I mean, so we've gone from his childhood, we've gone to his, his sort of early fighting days and then he gets to a prize fighting ring and this is where it becomes really interesting because you get this guy who, who essentially is a middleweight who comes in and he's, he's, you know, he's inexperienced as a fighter and his version of fighting is very much set in the pocket and the cliche saying that I love to say is fighting in a phone booth or a phone box. And it was very much like he had this fighting style that he'd adapted and it worked for him. And because he had power in both hands, he always had the equaliser no matter you know what what fighter he came up against and these were times where lateral movement was few and far between in a boxing ring you know boxers then were if you didn't stand and fight you know you were you were you know goaded as a runner the the fans didn't like that then the fans didn't appreciate the artistry of what the sport was all about it was more you've got to stand and trade and you've got to be a man it's that stigma against the sport at the time that Stanley Ketchell was well in the height of and this is what he adapted and no matter what he was up against, it was like he, he felt like he always had this equaliser. And I think in, in some of the quotes that we put into there, he pretty much does say that about his fighting style when questioned about it. And it's like, you know, this is a man that knows what he's going to do. He knows what his limitations uh, and his advantages are. And he's just going to go out there and do what he can to to, to go on to, to do what he wants to get to, which is essentially uh, going on to become a champion, which he does. Middleweight champion of the world, not once, but twice middleweight champion of the world. And... The fact that he dares to be great, I think, is one of the biggest stories of this of this Stanley Ketchell live story. Is that when you think of Stanley Ketchell, I think the name always ties in with Jack Johnson because of that infamous fight, and it's infamous because essentially it was a staged fight. It was a staged exhibition where Jack Johnson and Stanley Ketchell had agreed, you know, that they will uh, basically Johnson will carry him for a number of rounds the fight will go on it'll end up being a draw they'll go into a second matchup and it'll make more money and that's just them playing politics at a very way before politics became a bit of a thing in boxing uh, as as bad as it is today and Sandy Ketchell takes that chance in that fight and he you know he's, he's, his manager says go for it throw the punch that footage is there I think we've all seen it most boxing fans have seen it we've seen Sandy Ketchell putting Jack Johnson down and then Jack Johnson comes back and absolutely bludgeons him showing that the weight difference was clearly a massive factor going back to that then Luke 
big talking point from the story for me, this, the Jack Johnson, the staged exhibition, Jack Johnson flooring him, the fact that he was so much bigger than him, the fact that Stanley dared to be great and go in there against him. What do you think of the, that story and, and the retelling of it and, and, and the information you might not have already known about it? Well, first off, um, in this series, racism has been like a theme with older fights. And I have a quote here that says, I'm open to fight Jack Johnson and black fighters. Very much tells you what era we're in, because I don't think that like someone would say I'm open to fighting Floyd Mayweather and other black fighters. Like you can definitely see we're what 40, 50 years away from the civil war in America race in America. It's still very, very like conversations are not being had around it. Going away from it, I think in this era, my view of Stanley Ketchell and Jack Johnson, Jack Johnson's obviously the best fighter that probably there's ever been in boxing up until this point. There's probably like, what do you think? Maybe five or six really good fighters in the whole entire world that the people care. Ketchell's catching on is like this kind of John Wayne before John Wayne type figure in many ways. Now that I talk about it, John Wayne probably got some of his stuff from Stanley Ketchell. Um, it, It was inevitable right? What was what I heard from your story. You had to put these two together because they were two people that people wanted to see in boxing. And before television, people are going to show up because if they don't show up, they miss the fight. You got to hear about it from your buddy. So it was, I don't know if it was one of the first, but it was a mega event in boxing that I think most people will forget about because it's predated in kind of the hoopla of casinos and all that but i think it was a necessary evil now the politics i mean politics are always dirty yeah (laughs) well for me i had this conversation with johnson on the episode about like the whole fixed fights exhibitions etc etc i mean putting myself in their shoes living in that time i can't imagine what it was like to live in that time i can't even fathom to think what it was like to live in a time like that. So my only thought was really is that these guys were at a point of their lives and careers where they wanted to make as much money as they possibly could and they saw an easy way to do that. By doing that, that was kind of putting on this, not so much a fake fight, but it was in a way, but it wasn't because Johnson, by all reports, did carry Ketchell literally for 12 rounds before Ketchell and his managers decided to, you know play it a bit greedy and, and, and double-cross Jack Johnson and, and put him down. But that also proved as well that, you know, although it was a bit of a sucker punch, that all these reports of Stanley Ketchell being a bit of a murderous puncher were clearly quite true because he puts Jack Johnson down. Yeah, Jack Johnson, people might say he was a little bit off balance when he took the puncher and whatever you want to say about it, but the fact remains and the footage is there. He puts him down. You know, a guy who probably weighed no more than 175 puts a guy who was about 220 down. And the guy jumps up and <laughs> absolutely bludgeons him. And that just goes to show like the weight difference and the aspects of it. In a modern day comparison, you're thinking of like, you know, someone like a Canelo, you know, fighting a fighting a cruiserweight, which has been something that's been spoke about quite recently. It's like Canelo fighting a fully fledged cruiserweight and like these this cruiserweight just absolutely bludgeoning him uh, after Canelo puts him down. It's the same it's the same sort of comparison. This is what Stanley Ketchell did. He took an opportunity. It backfired on him. He got put out cold. And the, the, the reports say it was up to nearly an hour. He was out cold for nearly an hour. He lost two of his teeth. They were stuck in the glove of Jack Johnson. 
and that was the last time he ever took a chance like that. And he essentially he ruined he ruined what could have been a great deal for him, you know, going forward. I'm pretty sure Jack wasn't willing to do any more uh, any more work in the ring with him after that, after being uh, double crossed a little bit, because by all reports and accounts of the time, you know, they actually got on quite well as individuals. Maybe the, maybe after that they still got on quite well. Who knows? But I just found it fascinating to know more information about that particular incident and how it all came about and, you know, the, the actual fight itself and the aftermath of that. Because I feel like that was a pivotal moment in, in Stanley's boxing career as a whole. He makes that massive jump up in weight, dares to be great. And everyone around him, he's egging him on to do it as well, by the way. Uh, this is a fact that I've not mentioned in the after show yet. It's like, I'm talking about a guy who was a middleweight, no more than, say, 175, which should be like light heavy today. And, you know, everybody around him, even the public, felt like Stanley Ketcher would be the man to go on and, and be a successor in the heavyweight division. This is a guy who is so much smaller, and it's quite evident at the weigh-in for the fight when he bulked himself up wearing loads of clothes underneath his coat to make him look bigger than what he is, that it's evident that size does play such a factor in the ring. Even even back then, and even now, size, you just can't escape it. I think my comparison would be like, imagine if Gennady Golovkin fought George Foreman. Because I, I think Jack Johnson at that time, people were smaller. So, I mean, like, the probably the equivalent of Jack Johnson would be like a massive heavyweight, almost like an Anthony Joshua, because men weren't that big. So it's like, okay, Ketchell's like a big buff dude, but here's a guy that if he walks anywhere, you're like, that's a zebra. Like Jack Johnson's don't exist anywhere. And he just, he basically gets run through. It's like Golovkin dropping George Foreman, George Foreman getting up kind of like, I think a quick modern equivalent, not in the same way, but like Terrence Crawford, Sean Porter, the corner says, Hey, you're losing. Terrence Crawford comes out of the corner and just beats up Sean Porter. He's like, Oh, I got to It's like instantaneous. I think he's interesting. And I think that this fight will always be like one that boxing nerds and all of us talk about i also think it's a cautionary tale for any young person that your friends will lead you into situations but they won't stand next to you when you're in the situation because ketchel people had no issues leading him into this situation but they may not have been the most helpful when the when he's out for an hour uh unless they were getting paid well this is probably what it was all about we can only imagine that some things in boxing have changed dramatically in the past 100 years, but there's some things that will always remain, and that's usually the clingers on, the greed that surrounds the sport at times, and the people that want to profit off the back of, of, of stars of the time. We see it still now, don't we? we? We I think it's just more prominent now than it's ever been because we have social media, and social media is quite easy to, to identify these individuals that are the clingers on, that are not going to be in the dressing room on these fighters eventually lose or the train goes off the tracks. Back then, you know, they didn't have that. So it was just a case of people telling Ketchell, you know, you can go on and you can be a heavyweight champion, have this exhibition, make some good money off it, go into the next one and go forward and make some more money. But it's his manager that obviously had that moment of greed and that moment of sort of lust for money because he says... He tells him to go on, go on, throw the shot. And he throws the shot, and he, yeah, he successfully drops him, but ultimately he pays a massive price for that, which which I think is, again, I think is a pivotal moment because I don't feel, you know, in terms of his boxing career, that, that he ever really recovered from that. You know, he does go on. He does get involved with Sam Langford. They do have an exhibition. 
and they are supposed to have a uh, a, a real fight, as they called it, a real fight uh, the following year. And that doesn't happen because Stanley Ketchell dies, unfortunately. But I don't think he's... Um, I think his boxing career took a bit of a... A bit of a... A dent, a massive dent at that point. He got knocked out by the biggest puncher of the decade of his era. I mean, I do we ever see guys who get knocked out this brutally? Do they ever? I guess maybe Manny Pacquiao came back fairly well, but I mean, typically when you get flatlined, I think of Costa Zoo, I think of really all the greats, they're never the same guy. And this is before modern medicine. So this is you take an ass whooping and he's probably back in the gym on Monday. Yeah, yeah, and you probably got someone above you fanning a towel over you, trying to wake you up, or trying to use some sort of illegal narcotic to try and wake you up at the time. I can imagine, I can picture the scenes like literally of how how that would have been for him. Uh, yeah, his boxing career takes a dent. Um, Sam Langford looks promising. You know, looks like there's going to be a promising uh, future for him there. Again, because of his age, it looks like potentially you know there may be some good money for him, but. And here's the book. You know, he decides that he's going to call this a day. He goes and he buys a ranch. Um, he's got this. He's got this so-called. Um, well, the story goes. If anybody's not already heard it, is that the Dickerson, uh, Emmett Dickerson, comes along in his life, and he's sort of like a bit of a surrogate father to him. Over uh, rumor has it, you know, he might have been his real father as well. Uh, that's a little bit of a. A twist in the tale again we don't know if that's true or not there's definitely nothing out there that we could source to confirm the truth behind that matter but the story goes that Emmett Dickerson comes in he's a good friend to him helps him get this ranch set up at acres of land uh, and Sandy Ketchell decides I'm going to go to this and I'm going to recoup and you know I'm going to get away from the limelight and away from all my problems outside of the ring uh, his issues with alcoholism uh, he's lust for women and he tries to get away from all that and you know I think to myself fair play to him he's trying to he's trying to change his life a little bit here before he comes back to boxing and then this is where it gets different this is where things change dramatically for him because him going to that ranch would lead to his untimely demise now leading up to that moment like not knowing the story in its entirety and maybe only knowing you know Sandy Ketchell was killed what was your initial interpretation about him then deciding to, at the age of 23, 24, shut up shop and, and go and get a ranch somewhere and, and decide that that's what he wanted to do? Well, I was somewhat familiar with this story, but I didn't know the guy's name because my grandfather had told me about Stanley Ketchell and it was kind of like an urban legend that he was willing to fight guys up and down from his weight class. And his untimely demise was like a story I remember sitting in front of an old Dell PC in about 2002 to 2004 and being told like, this guy could have been a really good fighter. He was, he was ballsy. He had everything. He tried to, it, the way I remember this and the way I interpret it is he was just trying to get some stability after getting beat up really bad. He had just lost to a journeyman, I believe, on his record. And it seemed like he wanted, like, I think as young people, or at least for me, even if you're successful in an artistic or an athletic field, you kind of want to fit in with a little bit of normalcy. Like you almost want to feel like you have a day job, even if you're, you don't need it. Like there's, you need some form of routine. And I think he got to a point as 23, 24, he wanted to feel like a farmhand. He wanted to feel like that guy. And I think he wanted to have a period of his life where he got that out of the way and then i think he would have come back to the sport 
sad part is he never got to get uh, savagely murdered. And it, it's just kind of like one of these unsatisfying stories because you really you really get the sense he shouldn't have died the way he died. Well, this is a good, good, good talking point now, isn't it? I mean, his murder, going into the detail of it now, most people that will be watching and listening will either already know the story or have already listened to the episode that we've done on this. And this is where we get to have a good conversation about it because I'm interested to hear your take and as to how things all play out. So the story goes as uh, Walter Dipley uh, and Goldie Smith. You know, these are two individuals from two separate places that are on their own journeys, on their own paths, and their paths cross uh, at one point and they end up actually being besotted by each other they end up falling in, in love with each other they decide that they now are a married couple uh, Goldie had been previously married uh, so she was technically a bigamist at this point as well uh, they claim that they are a married couple they use a different name a different surname uh, and, and basically pass themselves off as a normal married couple looking for work and they look like they're on the road to uh, to getting the money that they want to get and they want to sort of set their own lives up so to get to, obviously, Stanley Ketchell's farm, he's not an experienced ranch manager, so he's got people there helping him that, that have been employed to assist him in learning how to be to be a ranch manager. Uh, they come along, you know, they, they get the jobs, and uh, there's, a, there's a bit of an argument between Stanley uh, and Walter Dipley. And what ends up happening is that we don't really know until later on why this leads to his demise, but what happens is Walter Dipley has this argument with Stanley Ketchell because apparently Stanley Ketchell has assaulted Goldie Smith or sexually assaulted her or made an advance to her. The details are not 100% correct, I don't think. I think there's definitely elements uh, of, of, of loopholes in there and open, definitely open to interpretation anyway. I'm not saying it didn't happen because that's definitely, you know, like I can't say that for sure, but he's infuriated, Walter Dipple. He's infuriated with, with, with Goldie Smith, his, his, his lover, you know, in, in this moment of lust, he's only been with her a month at this point as well. And he he's infuriated by that. He's infuriated by the fact that, you know, he's been spoken to out of turn and, and he doesn't like it. Now, this is what he says. He says that, you know, he wasn't very happy about that. He confronted Stanley Ketchell the next morning at the breakfast table about it. Stanley Ketchell, as we know, has always got his revolver on him, threatens Walter Dipley. At this point, Walter Dipley's picked up a, an air, a rifle from the bed, um, which he'd brought into the house with him uh, the previous night. And he decides, like an old Western, you know, who's going to draw first? And Walter Dipley draws, but he actually shoots Stanley Ketchell in the back when his back's turned and he shoots him and it's a quite a quite a nasty wound as well by all accounts and they they rob him uh, Goldie Smith apparently robs him takes his money and they go and they do one uh, well that's what you think happens Goldie Smith actually ends up staying behind because the the, hel the helpers on the site actually come along and, and find Stanley Ketchell he's bleeding he's managed to make his way to the bed at this point. And Walter Dipley's done a runner. He's he's well off. He's well off into the woods. And Goldie Smith, you know, she's there. She's saying, well, this has happened, that has happened. Uh, but ultimately, without going any further, Stanley Ketchell dies. You know, they, as much as they try to save Stanley Ketchell, they get a private train down to try and get him up to the hospital, which is two and a half hours away. He succumbs to his injuries and he dies at the age of 24. Walter Dipley's then caught after a little bit of a, uh, a witch hunt. 
and then he goes to court and he's tried in court and all the information that we was able to source were actually from Walter Dipley's words from the court transcripts of of what had actually happened at the time so that was quite for us it was quite enthralling to to go through and read about and hear the accounts of of this man who from for, for you know his reasons for why he murdered Stanley Ketchell and I thought that was really interesting I I wasn't really aware of why this murder occurred before doing the episode. I genuinely thought this was just a bit of a hit and run. You know, these two just turned up. He he was quite accommodating to them, and they just planned to murder him and and, and get his money and go. But after hearing the stories, it made me think twice about like how events might have actually played out. So, having heard all that and having heard that long winded way of me telling the story again. What did you think about it, having heard all the details, having heard the accounts of Walter Dipley, Goldie Smith, uh, words from Stanley Ketchell, even in Dick, from Dickerson's perspective as well, what did you take away? How did you see this playing out, and, and what's, what do you think is the version of events that happened? Well, I'm going to probably answer a question with a question, so you're going to love this. But I think this is the way all cowboys and gangsters kind of go. You know, this is the the story of the cowboy, right? You live by the gun, you die by the gun. And it, for me, it paralleled someone that died this weekend, uh, a rapper named Draco the Ruler. And it's like a lot of his music was amazing to listen to. You could tap your toes to it. But it also was mocking and belittling certain people in L.A. gang culture and, and riling them up. And for those that don't know that story, he was tragically murdered at a concert, stabbed in his neck and bled out. And it kind of reminded me of like how it's really you could create emotional attachments to these people and because they have so much talent and because you want them to be like a superhero you might not view them rationally as the person someone who doesn't have any interest or has been hurt by the words they're saying might view them what i'm saying is in the situation of stanny ketchell we look at him as an amazing prize fighter but in this situation, something occurred. Now, we don't know what occurred. I'm not up here to, to talk about allegations. But someone felt wrong to the point of shooting him. And that, that does, that's an, there's a major consequence in society if you shoot a man. So to feel that wronged, someone had to have done something to get you to that point. I don't know. I don't leave my house and people don't shoot at me. So... Two wrongs don't make a right, but I think it's clear that the presence he had instilled fear and created an environment where he could be shot at. And I think that's a big component. Once again, I say to young people, do not try to live your life by fear in this capacity, because oftentimes the energy you put out, you will be met with that same energy because like minded people are going to collide. So that's why it's better to try to have collaboration to try to encourage and if you do collide with people use your words to collide because when you run into these people you're going to be going up against your equal a, a worthy foe someone that thinks just like you and more often than not has the same heart as you and someone that's probably also willing to go that extra mile as well that's the thing isn't it with with this sort of societies like you will find people that may be like-minded maybe as equal as you in in the mindset but there are always people that are willing to go that extra step to pull that trigger. And in this instance, for whatever reason, whether it was premeditated or not, or whether it was a hit and run and they just wanted to get his money, 
they killed him. He could also dip the kill Stanley Ketcher ultimately and does a runner. And whether that's a runner out of fear, whether that's he just wanted to get away, who knows? I mean, he said it was because, you know, his, his, his actions were... He didn't expect it to happen. You know, it was a natural instinctive reaction. And then that's what happened. And that was his reason behind it. He does go to prison. He does get tried. He does get convicted. Uh, he does come out of prison. He does spend a little bit of time out of prison before the end of his life. He does go on to live until 1956. So he lives a relatively long life. But Stanley Ketcher dies at the age of 24 as a result of these actions that, that he, he took that day. And and even Goldie Smith goes on and she, she ends up going on and living her life as well separately. She does get put in prison for, I think it's a period of 18 months, but then gets pulled out of prison uh, and basically acquitted because she actually didn't commit any crime, so to speak. They didn't find any evidence that she, she you know, she conspired to, to kill Stanley Ketcher. There wasn't anything there to, to confirm that. So she was sent to prison for a period of time. She got out and she lived her life. They got to live their lives. Stanley Ketchell wasn't able to live the rest of his. And it was a sad ending to what is... I think he's someone who lives in boxing folklore. There's a lot of myths surrounding Stanley Ketchell. Uh, there's there's a lot of rumours surrounding him. And I think we've... I think for the most part, I feel like we've been able to educate people a lot on, on factual information that we've put together out there. And there'll always be stories and fantasizations about about Stanley Ketchell. And there'll always be people that will have their own fantasization of how things went went down and and how he was as an individual. And and that that's that's dependent upon the person who's consuming the podcast and who's listening to it. You'll either walk away thinking, you know, he was uh he was a quick witted, gunslinging, fantastic boxing middleweight champion or you'll walk away thinking he wasn't the greatest of human beings and he got what he deserved and i can imagine there'll be people that'll take that away with them uh, and and the whole point of putting all the information out there and putting it into the story is because it's it's there it's in the public domain you're able to put together a full and complete story on what happens to stanley ketchell and maybe you kind of put to bed a few of those rumors as to uh, what really happened to him because i mean i i felt like there was many rumors and conspiracies circulating as to how he died and why he died but now i kind of feel like you know there is it is an open and shut case he, the people were tried for it people people were put in prison for it and and that was the end of that and we never got to see how great stanley ketcher would go on to be i i, I ultimately enjoyed doing it i ultimately enjoyed doing the story and i think like people have come back to us already and said to us you know they've enjoyed listening to it they've enjoyed getting this this perspective on stanley ketchell's life and that you know it opens a a few more doors as to like where where they would like to take their own research next or where they would like to to look at similar stories like this so i'm glad that he's kind of been uh, received by people like that and i'm glad people have enjoyed listening to it and there was a story that i haven't mentioned yet the murderous mexican what did you make of that story I mean, it is a lot. Why don't you just give people, because we're running on a crunch, why don't you give people a brief overview instead of me just talking, 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 because I think that you can explain it, and then I'll just add my two cents at the end. So, okay, so The Murderous Mexican, then, is basically like boxing. Again, not like boxing, but a um, a Western folklore, a guy that would, would go out there and he would commit crimes. And I'm trying to think of a good 
real world comparison to him like a billy the kid's probably one that you mentioned earlier you know he was like the mexican version of billy the kid who would go around and there is a story which gets told about stanley ketcher where ketcher actually comes across him during his time riding the rails and there's a moment where ketcher with his own gun he's firing back at this murder murderous mexican ketcher then decides to play dead uh and, and pretend that you know murderous mexicans got him this Mexican comes along, murderous Mexican, as he's called, comes along and he's looking for certain things. And Stanley Ketchell sees an opportunity, takes him takes him down to the floor uh, and knocks him out. And that's the story. And, and it's like, can you believe that really happened? Did Stanley Ketchell really knock out the murderous Mexican? An, Im- an infamous criminal from that period of time? Did it really happen? Well, it's, again, it's a lot of fantasization, and, and whether it's been dramatised, whether it's been a big game of Chinese whispers over the years, the story's been told that many times and it's been convoluted. That's quite possible. But I, I tell you what, it was one hell of a story and it very much reminded me of the Red Dead Redemption game. It felt like a, a plot line straight out of that game. But even if it was remotely true, I mean, man, that was a hell of a story. I think the moral of that story is Ketchell viewed himself as that guy's equal. And a lot of times in society, we go, okay, that's a criminal. I want to stay out of his way. He viewed himself as, I'm a scary dude. You don't disrespect me. I function upon the same laws and principles as you. I'd compare the murderous Mexican to like a machine gun Kelly, you know, in America. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a guy where there's whispers and there's intimidation and fear. And you just let that guy sit in a booth by himself. And Ketchell was not intimidated in the slightest. And who knows what the real story is, but to even have a story mentioned about that means you're an intimidating dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a story that I'll that I'll lay there in folklore because reality is we're never going to know the truth behind it. And it's just, I suppose it's a bit of fun to fantasize about whether that was true or not or how it happened and visualizing how it happened. Well, I think it just adds to to the demeanour and the personality of Stanley Ketchell, and it adds to his story. You know, you've got this guy who you perceive as a bit of a gunslinger, considers himself to be a cowboy who can punch with both hands, who wins middleweight championships, challenges in the heavyweight division, but he's also a guy who can take down a serial killer in the same sense. It's like, this is one hell of a guy, isn't it? Like, when you think about it, this is one hell of a man to be able to, to undertake all these things in such a short space of time during his life. I mean, you say one hell of a guy, he's either spectacular or stupid because there's a reason why a lot of people don't do these type of things. So I think that maybe what makes him so special is also what got him killed. Well, this is this is, again, how people are perceiving the episode. Do people think he's a stupid individual because he made the wrong choices and he had too much of confidence in himself to be walking around with a revolver? You know, walking around saying this is this is me. This is my this is my ranch. You know, I walk around with this revolver. Quite intimidating. That could have been the reason. That could have been the focal point. That was what was mentioned in the courthouse by Walter Dipley. Is that he felt intimidated. He felt like you know he was going to get shot because he was told by Ketchell, "I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot you if you don't back off." Basically, and he he took the opportunity first, and that could be down to Ketchell's. Over over self-confidence, his ego, it could have been completely down to that. Because I do feel yeah, he had a bit of an ego. Definitely had a bit of an ego. He's definitely a character. Like, even though I can only go off what we know and what's out there factually to know about this guy, 
it definitely got an ego. There was definitely an ego there with him. Wh- whichever way you wanna you wanna label it, there was definitely an ego within this guy that led him to the path that he went down. And ultimately, whichever way you look at it, it led to his demise. Yeah, I mean, there it is. So, what are we talking about for our finale? Well, season finale, season two, episode ten. We're talking about Oscar Bonavina, 1960s-70s heavyweight contender. He he rumbled with the best. He was in there with the best of the best of the golden era of the heavyweight division. But himself, outside of the ring, also a troubled individual. Also had many incidents, which we will go into throughout the course of the episode. And if anybody knows Oscar Bonavina, surely they'll know how it all ended for him. If you don't, well, he's another one. Another untimely demise in the life of another fantastic fighter of that particular era. And I'm really excited to be talking about him in the finale. We will also have a special guest on during the week. Uh, following on from our after show, Luke, we'll have Patrick Connor, the author of Shot in a Brothel, the, the Hamilcar book that's been brought out of that series, the Noir series. Another great book, uh, another great author, another great boxing historian, which I'm sure many of you have probably heard of, of Patrick before he's going to have some great insights into the life of oscar bonavina so i'm very excited to release the episode doing the after show and obviously special guest patrick connor will be on to give his thoughts on the demise of oscar bonavina patrick's great guy i am super thrilled i'm excited to be a part of this program i love learning i feel like i've grown a lot thank you very much luke it's been a pleasure as always i'm gonna see you next time Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.